And today we are privileged to have Brandon Pepin preaching as we continue our series in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, he is uh, the pastor at River City Church in Dubuque, Iowa, and he is married to his wife, Hannah, and they have two children, Emma and Caleb. Brandon graduated from UW-Platteville in 2008 and from Southeastern Seminary with his master's in 2020. So today the reading is Nehemiah 9, 1 through 37. So sit back and enjoy. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from the all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Bani, Cherubiah, Bani, and Kanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Joshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Cherubiah, Cherubiah, Hodiah, Chebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that's, that is in, on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. You are kept and you have kept your promise for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water from for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted pres presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. 
The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples, and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets, who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and, their, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies, who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors, who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again, again before you. And you abandoned them into the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to, their, to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by the, your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end for them, end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from your wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress.
Awesome. Well, good morning, Redeemer City. My name is Brandon. Uh, I am not one of the pastors here. Uh, like Kara said, uh, I'm a pastor at a church in Dubuque, Iowa called River City. And uh, just really grateful to get to be with y'all this morning. Uh, at River City uh, right now, we're working our way through the book of Philippians. And uh, and as Paul begins that letter to the church in Philippi, he, he writes uh, full of thankfulness and gratitude and just like there's life in his words and there's just like a full, uh, just, he, he just has a very full heart as he thinks about this church. And he says that the reason for that is because of their partnership in the gospel. And when I think about Redeemer City, that's how I feel as well. Uh, many of you, maybe you don't know uh, or not, but when we were planting River City Church, you all supported us financially. I know your pastors and leaders have prayed for our church for lots of years. And and uh, believe it or not, I've actually been praying for you and for Redeemer City since probably most before most of you were even around. My friend Zach was on the core team that helped to plant this church. And, and so uh, you guys have all been in my heart for a long time. And I know that our church has been a recipient of your heart for us as well. And so, man, I'm just full of gratitude as I get to come this morning and preach God's word here. And I was thinking about like the partnership and the gospel that our churches have had over the years. And so grateful, uh, grateful for that. Uh, excited as well to get to open God's word with you this morning and keep working, working our way through the book of Nehemiah. Um, but if you, uh, like me, are joining Redeemer City for the first time, or uh, maybe you've just been gone, let me catch you back up a little bit on the story. Uh, thanks again to Kara, who powered through 37 verses this morning. I feel like she deserves a, at least like a pat on the back at some point later, right? But... Um, See, the, the book of Nehemiah, like every other book in the Bible, is not really a story about Nehemiah. It's ultimately a story about God. And they all are revealing to us something about who he is and what he's like and what he's done. And the, the story that we find in Nehemiah about God is all about showing us how God is a God who is sovereign and faithful to keep his promises. And what you see uh, is that in the book of Nehemiah, he's, he's being faithful to bring about his promises. He's made to his people to forgive and redeem and restore and to once again cause them to be a community of people who will live for the praise of his glory. And what we saw in chapter 1 through 6 is kind of the first half of that story. It begins with this Jewish exile named Nehemiah. He's serving as a cupbearer to the king of Persia at the time. And he gets this report about the sad state of Jerusalem and how God's people there are in great trouble and disgrace and how the walls after 140 years are still destroyed. And although this wasn't new information to Nehemiah, what happens is that God causes us to hit him in a new way. God causes him to care about that city and, and to see the, the, the reality of it. And his heart breaks over the reality that the dilapidated condition of Jerusalem's walls and the corresponding disgrace of God's people that are, are living there are in is ultimately proclaiming a message of shame and disgrace about God himself. And so because Nehemiah loves God's name and reveres it and because he deeply cares for the people of God, he knows he needs to do something about it. And so after months of praying and planning and seeking God, Nehemiah goes to the king and he asks him not only to take a bunch of time off work, but he asks this pagan king to not only uh, fund this rebuilding effort, but also to personally endorse it in spite of the fact that this very same king had just a few years prior put the kibosh on any and all rebuilding efforts in the city of Jerusalem. And miraculously, what you see is that the king says yes 
Because uh, this isn't Nehemiah's plan, it's God's, and he's the one that's at the center of the story. And so with the clear support not only of the king, but more importantly of God, Nehemiah heads to Jerusalem, he rallies the people there and to rebuild the walls and, and remove the shame and disgrace that their destruction is bringing on them and on God. And in spite of every kind of conceivable opposition from every possible angle, what we see is that Nehemiah and God's people, they do just that. And at the end of chapter 6, you read after 52 short days. These walls that had been laying in rubble for over 140 years are have been totally rebuilt. And you'd think that that would kind of be the climax of the story, right? Like the point where like everybody breaks out the balloons, there's like some, you know, there's like a hummus party since there's no pizza back then or whatever it might be, you know, like everybody's really excited. And, and what happens, right, is, is that that's not the case, You see, Nehemiah's goal from the very beginning was never just about rebuilding the walls of God's city. It was always ultimately about rebuilding the community of God's people. And that's what the second half of the story about is because the reality is that it wasn't just the state of Jerusalem's walls that God always intended to proclaim His glory and His goodness to the world. It was the the actions and the attitudes of the people that lived within those walls. I was meant to declare something about God, to reveal something about who he was and what he was like to the nations. And and so rebuilding the people of God into a community whose attitudes and whose actions proclaim the glory and the goodness of God, that's what the second half of the whole book of Nehemiah is is all about. And as you studied chapter 8 last week, as as, as Nate preached about that, what you saw is that the, the work of rebuilding a community of God's people, it always begins, both then and now, it always begins by reassembling establishing the Word of God in giving it its, its place as the right and good and highest authority in our lives. And, and what you saw in chapter 8 is that as the people are moving back into the city that they've just rebuilt, is that, is that their highest priority, the thing that they think is the most important thing for them to do, is to gather to learn the Bible and to worship God. And so they ask Ezra, their priest, to, to read and to teach God's Word to them. And like any good pastor, he does not need to get asked twice. He carpe diems that moment and goes ahead and preaches a six-hour sermon. And since Nate's not here, I can feel like I might as well just do the same, right? Um, and what happens though is that as, as the people hear God's word being read and explained to them, what happens you see throughout the letter is that they begin to weep. And what they're experiencing is called godly sorrow. See, they're realizing that all the ways that their attitudes and their actions are out of line with God's word and his ways and they're being convicted of their sin and their rebellious attitudes in their hearts and, and rightly they are sensing the magnitude of that reality. But what Nate so helpfully pointed out last week and what you can't miss is that the godly sorrow in that community didn't just lead them to sadness. It didn't just lead them to regret. Instead, what we see is that it begins to lead them to a genuine joy-filled repentance. It's actually the way to joy and to life and, and to live new lives that are characterized by obedience and turning from sin. And that's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that godly sorrow is always meant to do. And so repentance is the thing that chapter 9 and chapter 10 in Nehemiah are all about. In a lot of ways, it's kind of like a part 1 and part 2. And I'm just here for part 1 this week as we take a look at chapter 9. But what I want to show you this morning as we take a closer look at this prayer of God's people in chapter 9 is that, is that true repentance repentance, it always begins with confession. True repentance, it always begins with confession. You see, nobody likes to talk about their sin. 
Zero people in the history of ever like doing that. It's not something we like to do. We want to hide it. We want to shift the blame. We want to explain it away. We want to try to redefine it. We want to try to manage it in some way, but we absolutely do not want to confess it. We don't want to admit it. What I want to show you this morning as we look at God's people's repentant confession of their own sin is that, is that seeing and remembering God's track record of relentless faithfulness and mercy in spite of our sin, that's actually the thing that empowers you to be willing and able to confess your, your sin to him. Seeing and remembering his track record of relentless faithfulness and mercy. That's the thing that actually empowers us to be a people that are characterized by confession and are willing to embrace it and that actually are able to receive the kind of grace from God that we need so we can live new lives for him. And So I can't wait to show you that this morning as we study this passage. And, and so before we do that, let's pray and then we'll dive in together. So... God, thanks so much for your word and our time together in it this morning. I'm just grateful to get to be here uh, with this church and this community. And God, we just pray as we study that you'd be gracious to, by your spirit, to keep speaking to us. That the things that were, that you were doing in this community uh, long ago, the community of your people, that you would be gracious to help us learn from them. And not just to learn what to do, but to learn who you are as we study your word. And so, God, we ask that out of uh, a knowledge of you and an understanding of you that that you might be keep shaping our hearts, that you might as well cause the gospel to be good news to us this morning that enables our repentant confession and, and lives lived for you. And so uh, I can't accomplish any of that. And so, God, we ask that you would, God, for our good and for your glory, we pray it. Amen. All right, well, uh, like, uh, like I said before, I'm really grateful for Kara for reading all of those verses. What you, uh, probably won't be surprised to hear at all if I tell you is that that's actually the longest prayer in the whole Bible. Uh, that section in Nehemiah chapter 9 is the longest recorded prayer that we have in the whole Bible. And it basically is a summary of the entire Old Testament and the story of God's people there. The events recorded for us in the book of Nehemiah, while physically kind of in the middle of your Old Testament, they're actually chronologically the very last set of events that we have recorded for us in the Old Testament. It's the very last thing before we get to the Gospels and, and Jesus comes on the stage. And, and the summary that you, that we read here in the, in, of the Old Testament traces the story of God's people beginning with God's covenant in Abraham and including their captivity and their exodus from Egypt. It's their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness that followed it, their eventual entrance into the promised land and the cycle of rebellion and deliverance during the time of the judges and the kings, all the way up to their eventual defeat and exile at the hands of the Assyrians and Babylonians, which has led them to the very situation that they're finding themselves currently in. And What's so striking as you see the way that God's people recount their story in this prayer, in this passage, is, is that it's not a version of the story that makes them look very good, is it? It's not a version of the story that makes them look very good. See, usually when, when people tell their story, their own story, it's usually done in a way that, that makes them look good, right? It's usually done in a way that makes us look good or heroic or victorious or impressive in some way, shape, or form. But the reality is you don't see any of that here in this prayer. You don't see any of that See, throughout the prayer, God's people are admitting how they have repeatedly been characterized by stubbornness and hard-heartedness and unfaithfulness and disobedience and outright rebellion. 
See, at the, the heart of this prayer is not an attitude of self-congratulation. It's an attitude of humble, repentant confession. Like I said earlier, the, the kind of true repentance that godly sorrow produces, it always begins with confession. And I hope it's obvious to you that we do not have time to suck the marrow out of 37 verses and 10 minutes it takes to just read them all. But what I want to do this morning in our time together is I want to kind of highlight a few really important things that we see in the passage about the kind of confession that true repentance is characterized by. The kind of repentance that true confession is characterized by. And the, the first thing I want to show you is that, is that repentant confession, it begins with an accurate view of God begins with an accurate view of God. You see, the emphasis throughout the whole prayer on this is on remembering and praising God for who He is and all that He's done. More than 50 times the word you or your is used in reference to God's character, His actions, His attributes. And, and what you see is that He's mentioned on average of twice a verse throughout the whole thing. The prayer begins in verse 5 and 6 by highlighting how God is the one true sovereign king and creator of everyone and everything, and that he is therefore the only one who is worthy of being worshipped and praised and, and lived for. The prayer goes on repeatedly to emphasize how God is not just the sovereign ruler and creator of everything, but that he has proven himself to be faithful and to be good. Verse, nine, verse 8, he is righteous, keeps his promises. Verse 9, he sees and hears the cries of his people. Verse 11, he rescues them from their enemies. Verse 15, he provides for them. Verse 13, he gives them laws and commands that are just and good. Verse 17, he's forgiving and gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love. He doesn't desert his people. He doesn't abandon them. Verse 21, he's sustained and provided for them in the wilderness. Verse 23, he, he gave them land and children and all kinds of good things. Verse 28, time and time again, he delivers them from their enemies. The list goes on and on and on. See, the reality is, is that we like to compare ourselves to other people. We like to compare ourselves to other people because when we do that, we have a whole lot less to confess. You see, we, we think, well, we're just, we're, it's, at least we're not as bad as them. At least we haven't done X, Y, or Z. Right? At least we haven't lived this way or thought this way or done X, Y, or Z. But here's the truth. Confession is not about admitting the ways that you do not measure up to other people and their standards. Confession is ultimately about admitting the ways that we don't measure up to God and to His standards. And so true confession must always begin with an accurate view of God and with comparing ourselves not to others but to Him. You see, the reality is that it's only when you have an accurate view of God that you can get an accurate view of yourself. It's only when you have an accurate view of God that you can have an accurate view of yourselves and your own sin. You see, in stark contrast to God's unwavering faithfulness and goodness and righteousness and graciousness and mercy, what you see throughout the passage is the abject wickedness of God's people. It stands out like a sore thumb. Throughout the whole passage, verse 16 and 17, they, they pray, but our ancestors, they acted presumptuously. That means arrogantly. They stiffened their neck. They refused. They did not obey your commands. They refused to obey. They were not mindful of your wonders, which means they forgot them. They refused to remember them. All the signs you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck. They appointed a leader to return to their slavery. Verse 26, they were disobedient, rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets. 
who had warned them in order to turn them back. Verse 28, even after, as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Verse 29, they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. You see, what's so important that you see in the passage here is that, is that they don't, they don't try to minimize their sin. They don't try to rationalize it. They don't try to make excuses for it. They don't try to explain it away. They, they don't try to shift the blame. They own it. All of it. They say, they say the buck stops here with us. This is the reality. And understanding that situation that they're in, they, they realize that the hardship that they are now facing as returned exiles living under the authority of foreign kings is a direct result of their own sin and their own rebellion. It is not God's fault. It's theirs. What they understand so clearly now is that any of the good that they have has been a gracious radically undeserved gift from God and everything that is hard that God has allowed into their lives they are owed and so much more verse 33 sums it all up this way he says they say you have been righteous in all that has come upon us you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly they own it they they are honest with God about it What's happening in their prayer of confession is that they are agreeing with God. They are agreeing with God about who He says that He is and has proven Himself to be and who they really are and have proven themselves to be. And see, that's really what confession really is. It's about agreeing with God about what is true, about Him and about us, that, that He is right and that we are wrong, that His ways are just and good and right and true and that ours are not, that ultimately He is the one who's God and we aren't. And that instead of letting him be God, we try to be. See, it's so important that you see this, church, that true repentance is marked by a confession not just of wrong behavior, but of a heart that stands in opposition to God's good rule and authority in our lives. It's not just of wrong behavior. You see, did you notice how their confession, it wasn't just the list of their wrong behaviors. They obviously include some of that in, in the story. But what I hope that you see is that what's repeated, what's underneath all of it, they say, is that their hearts were hard towards God. They were stubborn, stiff-necked, refused to obey. You see, sin is not merely bad behavior. Sin is mutinous rebellion against God himself. You see, the reality is that we want to be the ones that decide what is true and right and good. We want to be the ones who have the final authority. The reality is that all of us, we want to function as God. And we reject God's good authority and we enthrone ourselves as God. And our spiritual mutiny, it leads to all kinds of wrong behavior. Behavior that's out of line with God's word and his will and his ways. But that our, our wrong behavior is merely a symptom of our rebellious and wicked hearts. You see, and confession is about admitting and owning not just the things that we have done wrong, but the depths of our hearts which stand in rebellion against God. And these people get that. 
And so the confession, they, it begins with this accurate view of God, which leads them to an accurate view of themselves. And, and a confession that is fundamentally agreeing with God about what's true about Him and about us. And admitting that instead of worshiping Him, they, they have been worshiping something else. And that is all well and good to know. In fact, it's important that we know that kind of stuff. And it's important that we see that that's what characterizes true repentance. But I think we can just shoot straight with each other. I think we can just be honest. None of us is interested in doing that. Like, no, nobody thinks like, oh, that sounds so great. I'm just going to agree with God about who he is and about who I am and all the ways that I don't measure up to him. This is going to be so much fun. I love it, right? None of us want to do that. Nobody likes to talk about their sin, let alone confess it or admit it and own it. Whether that's out of fear of consequences or punishment or just the loss of approval or control. The, and so the question that you have to ask about this, the question that we have to ask is, what motivates these people to be so brutally honest before God and before one another? What makes them think that, that confessing their sin and all the ways that they've repeatedly failed to measure up to God's standard and rebelled against Him, what makes them think that that is a good idea? There's one thing. There's one thing that, that enables that in them and enables it in us. It's that they see God's proven record of relentless faithfulness and mercy in spite of their sin. You see, the prayer of confession, it ends not with the fear of punishment, with this, with, but with this hope-filled cry that God would again be merciful to them. You see, because in reminding themselves of who God was and all that He had done, they had not only seen their own sin and their own rebellion, but they had seen His grace and His mercy on radically abundant display. One commentator sums it up this way. He says, when we see God as He truly is, not only do we become aware of our own sinfulness, but we become aware of God's willingness to save and forgive. That's what you see in the prayer over and over again, don't you? Over and over throughout their prayer, they were, in response to all of their sin, what you see is that God is faithful, that He's patient, that He doesn't abandon them, He doesn't reject them when they are at their worst. Instead, He shows them grace and mercy, and He rescues them again and again and again and again. Not because they deserve it, not because they ask for it, but He does it, they say, because of who He is. Verse 17 you are a God who is ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Therefore, you did not forsake them. Verse 31, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Here's what they're saying. God, we deserve for you to leave us. We deserve long ago for you to have thrown in the towel and walked away. That's what we deserve. But because you are gracious and you are merciful and you are patient, you didn't. Not because of us, in spite of us. But because of who you are. Church, seeing and remembering God's track record of relentless faithfulness and mercy in spite of your own sin that's the thing that enables you to confess it to him 
to be honest with him about it. And not have fear of punishment, but instead with this confident hope of receiving grace and forgiveness. And that kind of actually empowers you to live the new life that you long to live. And that's exactly what's happening here in verses 26 to 31, what you see is that there's this repeating pattern of rebellion and of rescue that they recount three times how they were disobedient and so God handed them over to their enemies. In the first two cases, God's people cry out for help and He delivers them, but the last cycle in their prayer is not completed because the reality is, is that they were in the middle of that last cycle. In that very moment, and their prayer here is the cry for help. It is a plea for mercy and it is one that is full of hope. It's full of hope. Because they know if they will repentantly cry out to God, He will answer them. He will. Verse 32, Now therefore our God, the great and mighty and awesome God, who keeps His covenant of steadfast love, let not all of the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, for we are in great distress. See, the reason that they can come to God and admit their sin, not to shift the blame, not to manage it, not to rationalize it, not to try to make light of it, but to own it, all of it. The reason why they can do that, it, it, full of hope, and instead of fearing retribution, is because God has repeatedly proven to them that He has more grace in Him than they have sin in them. He has more grace in Him than they have sin in them. And where their sin abounds, His grace overflows all the more. You see, the very fullest picture we have of this reality is not just in this recounting of the story throughout the Old Testament, but in the very person and work of Jesus Himself. The ultimate proof of this reality about God, it's the cross, where we see that God is not just forgiving sinners, but that He's paying their debt Himself. On the cross, Jesus took all of God's just punishment for our sin, and so we can go confidently before God, confessing to Him our sin and, and asking that He would be merciful to us. Instead of fearing punishment or shame or guilt or the loss of approval, we can do it full of hope because we know that Jesus absorbed all of God's just wrath for our sin, that, that if our, by faith we have put our trust in Him, that God has no wrath left for us. Jesus has absorbed all of it. You see, this is the good news of the gospel church that although we are wicked and rebellious sinners, that God is faithful to forgive. So we don't have to be afraid to admit our sin. We can come to him with it, trusting because that because of what Jesus has done, that 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 is true, that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just and will forgive us and will purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, the good news of the gospel is the thing that empowers us to be a people who come to God with our sin to confess it instead of run from Him with it. It's the one thing that changes it. It's the proof that shows who He is and what He's like. See, but... Oh, God's grace is incredible news. If you stop here, you're just bound to keep repeating the cycle of rebellion over and over again. See, but in the gospel, we have a new power to live new lives that Nehemiah never had. 
See, in the Old Testament, there was just an external law pushing God's people towards obedience. But in the New Testament, because of Jesus and all that is done, we have an internal power that motivates and compels us towards it. It's not just an external law pushing us towards obedience. It's the God's very spirit within us calling us and motivating towards us. The Gospels are clear that, the, that Jesus' obedience was made possible because he was filled with the Spirit. And the very same Spirit that filled Jesus is the same Spirit that lives inside of all who have put their trust and faith in him. And God's Spirit, he shows us the reality of who God is. And God's Spirit shows us the reality about who we really are. And God's Spirit reminds us that in spite of who we are, we are dearly loved by God. Dearly loved by him. What happens is that that love overcomes all of our sin and our rebellion. And so we are motivated not out of fear or out of duty or obligation, but we're motivated out of joy, out of a love for Him, a longing to live our lives unto Him because we have received a grace we could never have earned. And so we're full of joy. See, the reality is, is that re religion says obey or else. But the gospel says, obey because you've already been forgiven. It's an altogether different kind of motivation. And it empowers an altogether different kind of life. One full of joy and gratitude, not characterized by duty and obligation. And it sets us free to live new lives that are full of God's grace received and worked out in them. See, some of you are here this morning, and as we talk about confession and about sin, this idea it weighs heavy on your heart because some of you are here this morning, and your tendency is to maximize your sin and to minimize God's grace and His mercy. You feel the weight of your sin all the time. It's something that you feel constantly. It is a crushing burden around you and you know that you cannot bear it. And I want to invite you this morning, I want to encourage you to believe again the truths of the gospel. That God has more grace in him than you have sin in you. And that on the cross, Jesus absorbed all of God's wrath for your sin. And so that all that God has left for you is a love for you. And I want to encourage you to run to him with your sin so that he can cleanse and renew and restore you and give you new life and enable to you to live a life that doesn't just make light of your sin, but one that lives free of condemnation. Some of you are here and you need that reminder this morning, but others of you are here. And like me, maybe your tendency is to minimize your sin. And I want to call you to an attitude of humble confession. Stop comparing yourselves to other people. Stop comparing yourselves to others, looking for people that you think are just a little bit worse than you so that you can make yourself feel good. Stop thinking about your sin as merely wrong behavior and start seeing it for what it really is as mutinous rebellion against the good and right authority of the great King and Creator of the universe. And I want to encourage you to be honest with God about it. Don't take His grace for granted. Ask God that you might help you to look again at the cross and to see how much it costs for God to be gracious to you. 
And in joyfulness and thankfulness, respond by taking your sin seriously. Confessing it to God. Not making light of it. Not minimizing it. Not rationalizing it. Not trying to excuse it or shift the blame. But owning it before Him. Some of you are here this morning as well. And maybe you have thought that you just never need to confess your sin to God. You've never needed to. Maybe you thought you didn't need to, or maybe you thought that it was too bad for Him to forgive. And I hope that what you've seen in our study of God's Word this morning is that both of those things are lies. That God is the one true, rightful King and Creator of the universe, and so therefore all of us are rightly under His just and right authority. All of us. And also at the same time, He has more grace in Him than you have sinned. And you cannot outsin him. His grace is more. And so that frees us to be honest with God about ourselves and to throw ourselves wholeheartedly onto his mercy, trusting that his grace will always be enough to catch you. And I implore you this morning to put your trust in him, to confess your sin to the one who can forgive it and who can cleanse you and make you and so wherever you're at this morning, as we celebrate communion in just a bit, I want to encourage you, use it as a chance to remember God's grace. See, communion doesn't save you. It doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't change your status and standing with Him. What it does is it's a chance for us to remember, to remind ourselves of God's overflowing grace made known to us in Jesus, and to remind us as well that He has more grace in Him than we have sinned in us so that we might be full of joy, come running to him with our sin, so he might renew and restore, cause us to live as his people for his glory. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for you this morning, and we're thankful that you are a God who forgives. You know, just forgive us once, but you forgive us over and over and over and over again. And so, God, we're grateful that, like the psalm says, that if you were a God who, who kept a record of wrongs, that nobody could stand. But the reality is that you are a God who's ready to forgive and who doesn't hold our sins against us. And so, God, would you cause us to be a people who sees you rightly and therefore can see ourselves rightly? And would you help us to see, God, throughout your word and in our lives, your relentless track record of faithfulness and mercy in spite of our sin? Might that fill us with joy and might it enable us to be a people who come to you to confess our sin so that we might live new lives unto you, we pray. Amen.